Uh, open your Bibles to Psalm 95. I want to thank you for the opportunity to share the word together this morning. I also want to just say what a joy it is to sing with you each week. And what a joy it is to know that uh, there are other uh, gifted musicians in this church um, so that the, the music ministry doesn't rest on one person's shoulders. Um, and so I'm grateful for Les's uh, leadership this morning. Um, let's begin with prayer and then we'll, we'll read our text. Father, we come uh, to you this morning and we open up your word believing that it is living and active that it is sharper than anything we have ever seen, in that it pierces into our hearts and discerns what we ourselves even can't discern. Lord, we want you this morning, as we read a, a passage that talks about our hearts, we want you to expose what is really going on in our hearts so that we can repent of sin and fully trust you like we ought. Father, this is something that I cannot do. And so, uh, Lord, this morning, I, I personally feel my need of you so keenly. And so I pray that you would uh, give me words that would be helpful in illuminating uh, the uh, the word that you have given to us. Lord, I pray that most of all that your Holy Spirit would do uh, the work that only you can do. Uh, that you would, uh, by exposing our hearts and exposing sin and leading us to repentance, that you would lead us to joy. And so, uh, Lord, we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Don't know what to say. <laughs> okay, they'll figure it out. Um, we're going to read Psalm 95. If you can't see it in your Bible, just listen. Okay. All right, let's read Psalm 95 together. It says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. If you're like me, the ending of that psalm surprises you a little bit. Maybe even the whole second half of that psalm surprises you. Uh, I think we've all seen movies where they end like they began. 
And we like those kinds of movies because they provide a nice, neat wrap-up at the end. It makes it feel like everything has come full circle. If you've read The Lord of the Rings or watched the movies, uh, they, they function a little bit like that, in that it opens with hobbits living peacefully in a place called the Shire. And then they go through all these harrowing experiences far from home. But then at the end, at long last, the series ends with hobbits dwelling peacefully in the Shire. But then there are other movies where the final black screen hits you by surprise, where you expected there to be something else or some nice, neat wrap-up, and then suddenly the black screen comes and you realize that's it. And the people who made the movie, of course, are intending for you to just sit there and to uh, mull over your thoughts about what you've just seen. And so this psalm does something similar. It ends abruptly. And actually, um, if you were to read it in Hebrew, you would see that it, it ends perhaps even more abruptly. It ends with something like God saying, if they ever enter my rest, dot, dot, dot. And grammatically, the sentence is never finished. Um, it's actually not that uncommon in the Old Testament for people to take an oath like this. And the point is, if X ever happens, the consequence will be so terrible, we're not even going to talk about it. Like, we don't, we don't need to discuss it. And so the point here is that there's no way that God is ever going to allow these people to enter his rest. So why would a psalm that started so cheerfully end on such a severe note? Well, I think the author of Psalm 95 is trying to help us to see something, that the whole psalm is actually about worship. And so he's going to teach us what true worship looks like. The joyful worship of verses 1 through 7 and the sober warning of verses 7 through 11 are both right responses to one thing, the character of God. And so um, we're going to talk about this psalm in two halves this morning. The first half we're going to call a call to worship, and the second half is the warning. So let's look at the first half. Even in this first half, the psalmist is twice going to command us to worship God, and then he's, uh, he's going to give us each, re uh, each time, he's going to give us reasons as to why we should do that. And so first he says, you need to respond to God with loud, wholehearted worship because he is a great king. These open, opening verses are like energetic. They're urgent. That opening come, the, the O come, is actually less like the, the, the come of verse 6. And it's something more like go on or get going. If you look at the verses for sing and make a joyful noise, um, if you compare in other English Bibles, um, you'll see that the idea here about singing is less of a gentle sing-songy feel, and it's more like full-throated shouting. Uh, Zephaniah 3 uh, tells Israel to do this. It says to sing aloud, to rejoice, to exult with all your heart, and to shout. In 1 Samuel 17, the word is used again of the warriors of Israel who see Goliath fall. And when they do, they start pursuing the, the Philistines, shouting. And this is that word. It's this full-throated shout of victory. And so why would you worship God like that? Well, he's going to give us a bunch of reasons. Um, if you look in verse 1, you notice what he calls the Lord. He calls him the rock of our salvation. And when he's talking about rock, we tend to think of a rock as something you can throw. But he's here talking about the kind of rock that you can't throw, the rock that is so big that it makes up half of a mountain. 
the kind of rock that you could use for shelter, the kind of rock that, that stays the way it is even though generations of humans come and go. And because God is a rock of salvation, he means to say that when God rescues people, they can totally depend on him. God is the kind of God who keeps his promises, who doesn't crumble under pressure. And when God saves people, he invites them into his presence where they can worship him. But verses three through five are gonna give us more reasons uh, that we should sing and shout. First of all, he says, Yahweh is a great God. The idea of great um, is captured well in the children's song. My God is so... Okay, I grew up singing big, actually. Sorry, I heard some of you say great. Uh, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. And of course, the, the idea of bigness here is not that you can measure God's size, but you get the idea that God is big in every way. His character, his attributes. He towers over everything and everybody. And so it says that... Yahweh is great, but he's a great king above all gods. Of course, there, are other, there aren't other gods besides Yahweh. Um, but you'll notice sometimes in scripture, other spirit beings, like angels and demons, are sometimes called lowercase g gods. Um, if you want to look at an example of that, you can see Psalm 82.1, where it says that Yahweh stands, um, holds counsel in the midst of the gods. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that the pagans who think that they are offering worship to gods, lowercase g, are actually sacrificing to demons. And so the point here is not just that God is a great king. These verses together make very clear that God is the great king over all the earth who has no competition. And that's confirmed in verses 4 through 5, which talk about the land and the sea and the heights and the depths. Because pagans had all these gods who controlled those places. But Israelites, and we by grace, know that the authority of the universe is held by one person, and that is the living God. So Yahweh is our creator. In his hand, in his control, are the unsearchable depths of the earth, the places that humans can't go, can't survive. And verse 5 says that the sea is God's because he made it. Again, if you, um, if you look at ancient people's mythologies, you'll frequently find them depicting the sea as dark, as chaotic. And really, no wonder, because uh, if you think about it, um, I know some of you have spent a lot of time at sea. Um, but really, it's not, it's not a safe place to be. You're, you're far from uh, sources of food and water. It can be really terrifying. But the psalmist knows that the sea is not a threat to God because God owns it, and he controls it top to bottom. Um, you could even think about uh, the depths of the sea. If you've ever seen a documentary on the Mariana Trench and seen some of the crazy creatures that, that just in the last few decades we've discovered down there who have like lights on their heads and crazy teeth and they, they're weird colored blobs that, um, that feed on toxic, uh, or no, the bacteria feeds on these toxic plumes of gas um, coming from the Earth's crust. And it's just, if you don't know what I'm talking about, look it up. Um, 
Okay. Uh, but it's, it's really amazing. There are these just incredible looking creatures at the deepest parts of the ocean that people for thousands of years, they've been there the whole time, but we just never knew they were there until recently. It's like God's aquarium uh, that he made for his enjoyment. So notice that there's an important logic here. Because God made the world, God owns the world. And because he owns the world, he has the right to say what goes on in it. And when we just think about the size of the earth, um, it humbles us and makes us realize how tiny and fragile we are. Um, I remember uh, an experience with Sarah's dad and her uncle uh, a couple miles off the Pacific coast fishing. And there was a vast gray sky and these black sea swells. And we were stuck in a little boat in the middle. And I remember thinking, how small I feel. And I could see shore occasionally. Um, but the world is so vast and the universe even bigger. But over all the earth and over all the universe is an even bigger God who is unimaginably great. And that kind of God deserves loud, wholehearted worship. There's an old American folks, uh, folk hymn um, called How Can I Keep From Singing? And it has this line in it that I think expresses this logic well. He says, um, if Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? Like, what, what else can I do? And so we need to respond to God with loud, wholehearted worship. But second, you need to respond to God with reverent submission because he is our shepherd. Uh, verses 6 and 7 say, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Um, we're told to worship and bow down and kneel. And obviously two of those involve a, a physical response, but actually all three of them do. Because the word for worship has the idea of uh, uh, bowing down with our faces to the ground in order to honor our superior, like a king or a god, or in this case, both. So while the previous section told us to sing loudly to God, this section commands us to respond with an attitude of submission and humility before God because we recognize that he has the authority over us. He is our maker. He made us physically. And perhaps uh, if you're like my mom, who completed nursing school when she was just a new Christian, perhaps some of you have studied anatomy and physiology, and you have worshipped over your textbooks as you look and say, this is incredible the way that the human body works. It's cause for worship. But remember that for Israelites singing this psalm, God had made them not just physically, but as a people, collectively, he had made them into a nation out of their forefather, Abraham. In one sense, they were God's special flock. And so God had said of them in Exodus 19, I will be their God and they will be my people. So if you look in the Bible, to, to have God be your God, to say he is our God, is a position of incredible privilege that is granted to you by grace. And so then, if God is our God, then we are the people of his pasture and the flock of his hand. Uh, most people in America know the, the first verses of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And so to be in God's pasture means to be under his care, where he provides for you. And to be a sheep of his hand seems to imply 
um, being under his authority or his guidance, that the shepherd sh guides the sheep where he wants, and they follow. So then let me, let me just note here that between verses 1 through 5 and 6 and 7, there's actually a parallelism here. Just like we are commanded to sing to God because he made the world and he owns the world and he has the right to say what goes on in it, so we are encouraged to bow in submission to God because he made us and therefore he owns us and therefore he has the right to direct how we live our lives with his guiding hand. And so in the Bible, worship isn't something, it's not like a, a theatrical act that we put on for God to try to appease him just because. No, worship is always a response to something true about God. It always has reasons so that we know that God deserves every bit of worship we give him. And so let's um, just pause for some, um, a moment of application here. Um, first, let me just point out that uh, there's a, a range of appropriate expressions for worship. Um, sometimes we need to muster up all the singing voice we've got and belt out a song. Um, other times we recognize, I think instinctively, that it is time for silence before the word as it convicts us of our sin. Or there are times for reverent awe after we consider a weighty text of scripture. And so this psalm teaches us both to sing loud and to bow low. It's possible um, that you prefer one or the other or you find yourself leaning toward one or the other. Perhaps you love positive, encouraging music or the old cheerful choruses. Or perhaps you think that more reflective songs and prayers of confession feel more authentic to you. Um, but really, we all should be learning both how to rejoice in victory in Jesus and to bow our faces to the ground in reverence. And um, we certainly, as a church, try uh, to... Uh, learn to do both of these together as we worship the Lord and sing. Um, second, let me just, let me just point out uh, that we are humans. Uh, we are embodied people. Um, everything that we, we know and do, we do in bodies. And um, our bodies reflect what is going on in our hearts. And um, we live in an age uh, where we think we can disembody everything. I think because of the internet. And so uh, we try to find ways to disembody work, um, to disembody our friendships, and sometimes even to disembody church. Um, and sometimes this creates uh, just really hurried surface level living. And um, the point that I'm bringing up here is not that you need to be more physically expressive um, or that you need to be the most physically expressive person in the room in corporate worship. I'll just, otherwise, I probably would be in trouble. Um, so, um, uh, but rather um, to ask ourselves, how can I make time to embody right responses of worship in my day-to-day -day life, to slow down and to give God uh, time in my body and in my mind uh, to embody these kinds of worship. I think uh, we probably do this instinctively. I think if we could get a window into some of your personal lives, we might view you uh, some morning uh, at the kitchen table, uh, pausing and resting your face on the pages of your Bible, mouthing, God be merciful to me, a sinner. 
um, perhaps later in the same day, we would see you singing loudly in the privacy of your car where no one else can hear, drumming on your steering wheel um, to a psalm or something like that. And my point here is what these two seemingly opposite responses have in common is that they're actually both right responses to God, to attributes about God and to his authority. And so um, that brings us to the second half of, of the psalm, the warning. And when we think of worship, again, we probably think of the first half of the psalm, of singing and, and praying or of music. But really, the second half is about worship too because it's about responding to God. And I think it's here precisely because it's part of responding to God that God's people have most often neglected. And so he says in the end of verse 7, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah, in the wilderness. Um, the point of the if here is not whether or not God is speaking to you. It's not like you need to figure out, oh, is God speaking to me today? The point is, God is speaking to you. The question is whether you're going to respond to the shepherd's voice calling you. And so, uh, at this point, the psalmist is going to remind us of an old story about people who refused to listen to their shepherd, so that we would avoid the same mistakes. And so he says in verse 8, when you hear the shepherd speak, and here's the whole point, do not harden your hearts. So show us what it means to harden our hearts. He's going to remind us of a story from Exodus 17. When the book of Exodus began, God's people, uh, the nation of Israel, had grown enormous in number, but they were still essentially slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. So God flexes his omnipotent arm, he humbles the most powerful nation on earth, and he leads his people out, destined for a new land of rest, where they will worship the true God and live under his blessing. But as God leads them with his hand, he actually leads them through a series of difficult situations. Now, why would God purposefully do that? Well, let's see. The first crisis they face is facing the Red Sea in front of them with the Egyptian army behind them. They're at a pinch point. And then God miraculously parts the waters and leads them through and destroys the Egyptian army. It is miraculous and stunning. But then there's another crisis. They come to a place called Mara, where the water is undrinkable. And in another miracle, God makes it drinkable. And God says in Exodus 15 that he has done this in order to test Israel, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh your God, and obey his commandments, that he would spare them for the diseases that plagued Egypt, because I am Yahweh, your healer. So God wants to use these difficult situations to expose how they will respond to him. So they're led into another crisis. Crisis three is where the people complain there's not enough food, and so this time God rains bread on them. In Exodus 17 is crisis number four. A massive entourage of Israel stops at this place called Rephidim to camp, but the catch is that there's no source of water at the camp. And so uh, the question is, how are these people going to respond to God? Have they learned anything about what he's like? Well, in Exodus 17, we read this. Therefore the, pe therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? 
But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt, to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So Exodus 17 doesn't record any immediate punishment for these people's response, but their hearts toward God never changed. And so when God offered them the opportunity to enter the, the promised land, you remember they responded in unbelief again. And at that point, God declares, you're not entering this promised land. You're going to turn back around and wander in the Sinai desert for 40 years until all of the adults are dead. They didn't just argue with Moses. They had a problem with God. And that's what God says in Numbers 14. He says, how long will they not believe me, in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? And uh, sadly, in Numbers 14, this whole scene repeats itself, if you remember, and this time even Moses responds in frustration and anger, not obeying God's instructions and barring himself from entering the promised land too. And that's why this place got named like it did. The name Meribah means quarreling because they challenged God with accusations. You know, God's going to kill us. God's going to take our stuff. They wouldn't accept that God had the right to lead them how he wanted, to test them or to teach them along the way. And in times of legitimate need, instead of asking or praying or pleading with God, they just accused God. The name Massah means testing because they tested the limits of God's patience by refusing to believe him over and over and demanding he needs to prove himself again, even though he had already done it. And so in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews is going to spend a little section of chapters 3 and 4, uh, kind of uh, providing an exposition of Psalm 95, and I would encourage you to read it this week. But he says, he summarizes it this way, they failed to enter the land because of unbelief. He also uses the word disobedience. But the point is that they weren't just struggling with fear. They were refusing to trust God. You can see examples in Scripture of people who were afraid of their circumstances or who doubted what God was doing, who were unsure how this would work out. People like John the Baptist asking Jesus, um, are, are you the one who is to come or Am I supposed to be looking for someone else? Because what he expected to see didn't meet what he was seeing. You see examples of the psalmists sometimes crying out, saying, where are you, Lord? What are you doing? But there's a difference between going to God with questions and pleas and saying, how long until you fulfill your promise? Because I believe you're going to do it, but when? And going to God with accusations. So the psalmist says, God is a great king and a great shepherd. A lot of people who've had every reason to believe him have responded instead with unbelief. And so we need to be aware of the consequences of unbelief. And what are those consequences? 
First, living under God's displeasure. In fact, that's a mild term. The text says God's disgust. He loathed that generation. It doesn't mean he didn't care for them. He kept feeding them manna, providing water for them. It actually says that he caused the soles of their shoes not to wear out, even while they were living under his judgment. He cared for them, but he was personally repulsed by their stubbornness. He put up with them out of mercy and pity, and may that not be said of us. More than that, it made God angry. He was angry with their wandering hearts like sheep who mutiny against their shepherd and just walk away. God says, they have not known my ways. They refused to recognize God's character and God's acts, even though they'd seen it before their very eyes. The problem was not with how much evidence they had seen. The problem was with their hearts. And so there's a truth here that we shouldn't miss. Whenever God demonstrates his love and his power to us, whenever we have the privilege of seeing his truth, we are responsible to trust him. When he proves his love, he is right to expect us to acknowledge it. And so God was disgusted and angry with unbelief. But the psalmist goes on. He says, if you harden your heart against God, you're never going to enjoy the rest that God offers you today. And this is the thought that the psalmist leaves ringing in our minds at the end of the psalm. Of course, for the Israelites who refused God's authority, they died young and their children inherited the land. But the psalmist, writing under the direction of God's Holy Spirit, he warns all of his readers today about how they respond. And this is a part of what you'll read in Hebrews 3 and 4. There, the author of Hebrews says, if you think about it, the original uh, Exodus generation, uh, their children were led by Joshua into the promised land, and they inherited the promised rest. But, he says, what about in David's day, when David penned this psalm, he told the people of his generation, today, do not harden your hearts so that you can enter the promised rest. But they were already living in the land. So there must be another rest that God offers his people and that God offers everyone who reads this psalm today. So what is that rest? Well, in Hebrews 3 and 4, in short, it is the eternal rest with God in heaven that God will give in the future to everyone who believes in Jesus. Hebrews 4, 3 says that we who have believed enter that rest. If you've been at Colonial even for a few weeks, I hope you have heard of something called the gospel, that God has proved his power and care for you in sending Jesus to the cross to bear the consequence for your rebellion against him and your self-rule. God calls you to turn from that and to bow in humble worship and submission because all who, who trust in Jesus for their salvation will find him a dependable rock of salvation and will enjoy the rest that he's prepared for them. And so the author of Psalm 95 says, don't harden your hearts. So again, why did this psalm of exuberant praise have to end with such a, a Debbie Downer? Because so many people throughout history who've known full well about God's greatness have offered worship to God that rings hollow because they don't really believe him and they won't do what he says. We read in passages like Amos 5, or Isaiah 1, where God talks to some of his worshipers, people who were exuberant 
and regular in their worship. And he says, just stop it. I'm paraphrasing. Um, he says, I, I don't want any more of your songs. I don't want your thanksgiving offerings. I don't want your bowing down. Because the wickedness of their private lives betrayed what they really believed. It really it just exposed their unbelief that what they did on the weekends, as it were, was just an empty show. And Jesus said in Luke 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I tell you? So the big idea of Psalm 95 is really all about worship from beginning to end. And the point is that you can't truly worship God without obedient faith. In every generation, you can spot who God's people are, who the, the people who will enter his rest are, because they worship God not just with loud songs and reverent submission, but also with obedient faith. So let's look at it. Um, I just, uh, in closing here, want to bring up a couple possible applications we can think through. First, I'd encourage you to allow God's word to fuel joyful worship in your life. In order for you to really get the kind of energetic worship that you see in the opening of Psalm 95, you really need to have a clear picture of what God is like in your mind and the kinds of things that he does. Bluntly, you can't, you can't worship a God you don't know. You won't want to worship a God unless you have reason to. And so we need to make time to savor bits of scripture that teach us about the character of God. The, the Psalms call this meditating on his word. Um, one of my children uh, one time uh, asked me, um, Dad, why does everybody seem so excited to be at church? Like, we sing songs, and we listen to some people speak, and we talk to each other. I'm like, well, that's not a bad summary of what we do at church. Uh, but, and I, I don't, I can't say I always give great answers to my children's questions. Um, but what I said was, well, actually, you're right in that I know a lot of them really are glad to be there. And it's because they believe that Jesus is king over all the earth and that they believe that he has saved them from eternal death. And that's why they sing. And I hope... That is, you get to know the Bible better. If you understand what God has done for you, and he becomes your God, that you will find that you will start to sing too. Second, when God guides you into situations that are difficult and appear impossible, trust him. Um, first of all, we need to accept that God is actually going to do this to us. That he's going to lead us through situations that will test us. James 1 comes right out the bat and says, we need to respond with joy when God uses these things to try our faith and to build endurance in us. And so we need to remember to not give in to the temptation to argue with God. We should not place ourselves in the seat of judgment over God. We need to rehearse all that God has done for us. And then we go to God in prayer and we plead and we cry out and we ask, we dump it all in a mess before God and say, Lord, do something, waiting in faith for him to act because he is faithful. Um, if you need words for these prayers, I would encourage you to look to the Psalms where you'll see people like battle-hardened 
warriors like David who were in dire situations pleading with God and saying, I am at night crying in desperation to see God work. Okay, but he's, he's asking these things in faith, not in accusation. He is confident that even though he walks through a valley of a shadow of death, that God has not forsaken him and that someday he will dwell in the house of the Lord forever by God's grace. And so when God guides you into difficult situations, trust him. Um, third, don't test God's patience by refusing to trust him after he's given you reason after reason to do so. Um, and I'm just going to kind of, I'm kind of drawing this application from the author of Hebrews. Um, perhaps there are some of you here who have seen God's truth. You have been under good Bible teaching. You've had mentors or parents who were the real deal. They were real Christians, and they showed, they demonstrated what God does through sinful people, but you saw the reality of God's grace. Let me encourage you that you are responsible for the truth that you have seen. Cling to Jesus in submission and faith. A day is coming when God's people will rest with him forever. And God says to you today, do not harden your heart. And then last, embrace the power of church community in helping you to grow in worship and faith. Hebrews 3.13, in talking about applying Psalm 95, say, why don't you just read Hebrews 3 and 4 and be done. Um, Hebrews 3 teaches us that other Christians in the church help us maintain tender hearts toward God. He tells us, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened in your hearts by the deceitfulness of sin. As a church, we can help each other to learn how to worship, to prod one another on, to persevere in our faith in Jesus. And so may God give us grace as a church to worship him like we ought to, both with loud songs and with obedient faith. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning that you are our God, not because we pursued you and happened to make the right choice, but because you have made us your own. Lord, we thank you that you have made us a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own possession, so that we could proclaim your excellencies, your greatness, because you called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Lord, we know that at one time we were not your people. We were wandering from you. But now, by your grace, we are your people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And so, Lord, we thank you, and we ask that you would teach us to worship, not just with our mouths, but with our lives. And we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.